Greeting, everyone. Welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. I'm the CEO of Greenfield Health, which is a two-site, nine-physician uh, medical group in Portland, Oregon, uh, for, and I am a former vice president of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We are delighted that you could join us today. I will, sir, again, serve as the moderator for the call. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge or what is published in a recent JAMA article into actionable steps that can be used to improve clinical practice and patient care. I'd like to uh, thank Dr. Dr. Margaret uh, Winker, as we do every now and again. Dr. Winker is the deputy editor of JAMA, and it's Margaret's responsibility, one of Margaret's responsibilities, to choose uh, the articles that we're going to use in Author in the Room, and she does a fantastic, fantastic job with, uh, with that. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 11 o'clock here on the Pacific Coast. Our next call will be Wednesday, December 17th, uh, and the article is Depression Screening and Patient Outcomes in Cardiovascular Disease, a Systematic Review. This article appeared in the November 12th, 2008 issue of JAMA, and it will be presented by Dr. Brett Tomes and Dr. Roy Ziegelstein, so we look forward to that. Please join us. Several uh, organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage each of you to do so as well. Today, our featured author is Dr. Rita Redberg. We're delighted to have Rita with us today uh, to discuss the article, Frequency of Stress Testing to Document Ischemia Prior to Elective Percutaneous Coronary Intervention that occurred, that was published in the October 15, 2008 uh, issue of JAMA. Uh, greetings, Rita. Greetings. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you. Dr. Redberg is a professor of medicine, Division of Cardiology, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center. Uh, she is the director of the Cardiovascular Women's Services at the UCSF National Center of Excellence in Women's Health. Uh, Dr. Redberg recently completed a one-year sabbatical as a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow in the office of, Dr. S or of Senator Orrin Hatch in Washington, D.C., Dr. Redberg is an expert consultant uh, to the Circulatory System Devices Panel of the FDA and has served on CMS, on the CMS Medicare Coverage Advisory Commission as well. She chairs the American College of Cardiology's Primary Prevention Performance Measures Writing Group and is on the program committee for the American Heart Association's Quality and Outcomes Conference. It's just a delight to have Dr. Redberg with us. Um, as moderator for the call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Redberg's research and her colleagues uh, with the goal of performance improvement based on this article. Once again, Author in the Room is designed for you to be able to hear directly from the author uh, about the research findings and uh, to have the opportunity to ask the author, in this case Dr. Redberg, questions about the study and its clinical application. So we're excited about that. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Redberg will spend approximately 10 minutes summarizing her findings. I'll take an additional five minutes just to draw some implications for the real-world practice setting and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. Importantly, I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls, not just in terms of questions, but in terms of comments and how you deal with a particular issue at hand. Uh, so by hearing from directly from the lead author and by you contributing, uh, we should have a really uh, fun and engaging hour ahead of us. Your participation is really critical to this, so we encourage you now to begin writing down your questions and or comments for Dr. Redberg 
so that when we get to uh, the question and answer or comment uh, question, we're ready to go in that regard. Uh, one other note, uh, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming uh, audio or podcast, should you choose to download or listen to either this particular uh, author in the room or past author in the rooms. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. So uh, just one other note, members of the media may be on the call on a background basis only. So let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Redberg, who will provide an overview of her recent article. Dr. Redberg. Thanks very much, Chuck, and I'm very pleased to be able to have this opportunity to discuss our work, and I want to acknowledge um, my colleagues on this work, who were Drs. Grace Lynn, uh, Adams Dudley, and Eric Zittinghoff at UCSF, as well as Lee Lucas at the Maine Medical Center, and David Malenka at Dartmouth. And we had done previous work exploring physician decision-making for stable coronary artery disease, looking at uh, choice of therapies, and this current work um, followed on from the previous qualitative work we had done, which involved focus groups. So in this study, we actually analyzed the use of stress testing prior to elective percutaneous coronary intervention. And specifically, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Intervention Guidelines state that for any patient with stable angina, any vessels to be dilated with a percutaneous coronary intervention must be shown to be, quote, associated with a moderate to severe degree of ischemia on non-invasive testing, unquote. And there's been a previous work done by Skip Anderson and colleagues that have demonstrated that patients who receive a percutaneous coronary intervention, such as a stent, who, have, in accordance with American College of Cardiology guidelines, have better outcomes. So with that background, we sought to look at how closely uh, the, this guideline was being followed in the Medicare population. And we analyzed data from all Medicare beneficiaries getting a percutaneous coronary intervention in 2004. And actually, we had a 20% um, random sample of all Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, we eliminated all patients that had a diagnosis of an acute myocardial infarction or unstable angina or emergency procedures so that we would have just the elective population. And then we analyzed how many of these patients had any kind of a stress test so a pharmacologic test or an exercise test in the 90 days before their percutaneous coronary intervention. And we did also go back to 180 days, but the numbers were about the same, and what we published was the 90-day prior to PCI experience. So what we found is that there were a total of 87,343 Medicare beneficiaries that underwent PCI in 2004 in our sample. So that was 20%, so that means there were almost just under half a million Medicare beneficiaries in 2004 who got elective PCI. I'm sorry, who got PCI. Of these, 23,887 met our eligibility criteria of not being emergent and the other exclusions. And of those, 44.7% or 10,629 had a stress test before a percutaneous coronary intervention. 
So our major finding was that uh, less than half of the Medicare beneficiaries who were getting elective PCI were actually being evaluated for ischemia and by non-invasive stress testing. Then we sought to look a little more closely to see whether we could define by either physician characteristics, patient characteristics, or hospital characteristics who was more likely to get a stress test as per the American College of Cardiology guidelines before getting a percutaneous coronary intervention. And what we found was that the, there were certain characteristics of uh, patients that were less likely to get a stress test. And so in the group of less likely than the average to get a stress test before PCI were the older patients, in particular over 85 years old, patients with a history of congestive heart failure. Women were less likely to get a stress test. Patients with prior cardiac catheterization were less likely. And patients with comorbidities, such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, were less likely. In the physician characteristics, um, patients of physicians who were doing more than 150 PCIs per year were less likely to get a stress test before their elective PCI. And then looking at what characteristics made patients more likely to have gotten a stress test before their elective PCI, patients who had a history of chest pain were more likely, black patients were more likely, and patients of doctors who were more than 70 years old were more likely to have gotten a stress test before PCI. And in summary, if we looked at all kind of system-level factors, which would include physicians, hospitals, and hospital referral regions, which I'll talk more about in a moment, they seemed to play a significant role in whether or not a patient got a stress test before PCI or not. So with hospital referral regions, and we looked at, as has been done before with some of the um, Dartmouth Atlas data, we looked at geographic variation of rates of stress testing across the country. And you know, we published um, the map in the article, and what you can see is, as has been found for a lot of other medical procedures, the likelihood of getting a stress test before your PCI varied a lot depending on where you lived. And the rates were as low as 22.6 22.6% up to 70.6%. Um, in actually, that was last the highest figure was in Rochester, Minnesota, and so it appears that getting a stress test uh, before PCI, like other things, depends a lot on uh, where you live, as well as other some patient and physician factors. And of course, this was a study done from administrative claims, so we were really unable to delve a lot deeper into the other reasons why patients would or would not have gotten a stress test. So I think in summary, we were most interested in looking at what patients in the Medicare population were getting a stress test before elective PCI as per our guidelines, and what we found was that there was a lot, of, a lot of variation across the country as well as some variation by patient characteristics, and that in general, less than half of the patients who are undergoing elective PCI are evaluated with a stress test um, before getting a PCI. Great. Uh, 
Thank you, Dr. Redberg. Sure. Really appreciate that. The, uh, so if we're looking at the figure, and I don't assume that everybody has the article in front right. of them, although most of them will, if we look at figure two, which is the, the classic geographic variation slide, right. the higher the ratio or the darker the figure, the more stress testing uh, compared with elective PCI. Exactly. So we would say that they are more in accordance with guidelines. Right. That's and right. I, the darker the figure. That's right. And I am I am sorry to say that Portland, Oregon, which is where mm -hmm. I am, is a light gray and not a dark black. So I have to check with my cardiology colleagues about that. <laughs> um, we do want to turn uh, now from this research because I think this is really a wonderful study, and I think it is uh, in line with a uh, a string of studies that uh, Elliot Fisher and others, uh, Jack Weinberg and others at uh, Dartmouth have done on uh, issues of technology uh, utilization. As, as I, uh, uh, a little-known uh, part of my history is, is a part of my Infectious Disease Fellowship way back when my research interests really were on technology utilization. And at that time, we were looking at why, why people use echoes as they do, as an example, for the diagnosis of endocarditis. And this, uh, this article, I think, is a terribly important one uh, in a string of articles that look at how we use technology. So I just want to really want to thank you for doing the hard research to inform us about this. We do now want to uh, 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 turn from what the research suggests about changes in clinical practice, changes that, that we clinicians and other healthcare professionals might want to consider, uh, to uh, um, uh, to your comments and questions about the article. Again, your questions or comments are really important for the conversation, so we ask you uh, to uh, feel free to write down your comments and questions, and Pamela will instruct us how to get into the queue. Pamela? Thank you, Dr. Kylo. For those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone, and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. If you are using a speakerphone, you must pick up your handset before pressing star 1 to register for a question. And if at any time your question has already been answered, please press star 2 to remove yourself from the question lineup. Please allow one moment for our first question. Oh, uh, first qu oh go, ahead. go ahead. Please, Pamela. Okay, we do have a question, and it comes from the organization FINDN. Please state your name before asking your question. Hi, my, my name is Ruth Littman, and I'm with the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision-Making. Um, in light of the data that you've presented um, in this paper and also in the um, recent um, acknowledgement that people who have PCIs um, often perceive them to be um, necessary procedures, where would you think in the cascade of being a patient um, it would be most beneficial to provide information so that people can avoid overtreatment. Okay, well, thank you for that question, and that um, it's an important question. And you know, from more from our previous work, when we did focus groups and talked to internists and cardiologists about when the, how their decision making goes for um, treating patients with stable coronary disease or even asymptomatic patients who have been identified to have atherosclerosis by various screening tests, such as coronary calcium, what we learned is in our current system, there's pretty much a cascade effect. And once you have the first test or your first entry into the system, it's kind of a, a very fast-moving train into, often into the cath lab. And so that 
the best place, I think, for patient and physician communication and discussion about options for treatment of coronary disease is in the primary care physician's office in the first point of contact. It's certainly also, you know, never um, to be discouraged from additional communications in the cardiologist's office and even in the interventional cardiologist's office and in the cath lab. But certainly it seems that in our current culture, I mean, often a referral, even for a stress test, you know, almost all positive stress tests seem to get um, followed up with a cardiac catheterization, and then once the catheterization is done, often if there's obstruction seen, there's the recommendation or the, the stent is done in the same sitting. And so the real opportunity for discussion of what the options are and what the next step should be, I think, is mostly in the primary care physician's office. Thank you. No, Ruth, it, that's a, I think that was a great question. And, um, and you uh, remind me what you said. You said that most people who have the intervention believe that it's necessary? Right. They, even people who have even a non-emergent setting perceive that it, it's, an, it's essential to have the procedure as opposed to having um, the opportunity to make a decision about it. Right. Yeah, and I think that, uh, as, as you well know, because your group has done a lot of work on this, is uh, patient perceptions are, are obviously a very, very important thing. Um, and it's it's important that we are uh, appreciative of them and that we're respectful of them. And at the same time, I think we have underappreciated our collective responsibility to uh, to mold those expectations. It, it is generally true. Uh, I don't have a clear a res uh, a reference on this, uh, that most patients think that the doctor that orders more tests is better than the doctor that doesn't order more tests. Uh, and uh, that's a very unfortunate thing. Uh, and the doctor who prescribes more, gives antibiotics for the cold, uh, is, is more informed than the doctor that tries to withhold. Those are, re those are really challenging things. And at the same time, uh, I don't think that the medical profession has come to grips with our own responsibility for shaping opinion, for shaping appropriateness of opinion. And that's maybe perhaps something we can talk about before, but it is a very insightful comment and one that we are challenged with because it is, I think it is our collective responsibility to uh, to help people have the right expectations. I don't, uh, Rita, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. I think what Ruth was referring to was there was a recent abstract um, presented at the American Heart Association meeting from the Mid-America Heart Institute where they um, did a survey of patients who had undergone elective PCI. And as she said correctly, 33% of those patients who all had had elective PCI thought their procedure was an emergency. Oh, right, and right. then 71% um, thought their procedure would help prevent a heart attack. 66% thought the procedure would extend their life. 42% right. thought it actually saved their life. And then getting more to where you could have the discussion, only 31% of them, um, I'm sorry, 68% of them said they were not offered any alternative therapy other than the um, stenting. Right. Right. So a great, a great study that looks at the uh, misinformation is not the right word, but the uh, inappropriate, uh, perhaps based on uh, evidence and guidelines, understanding of the patient on what's being done to them and why it's being done and the necessity of it being done. It certainly suggests that we um, need to be paying more attention to our communication to patients about their options uh, for right. treatment of stable coronary disease. And that just getting to your issue about the technology, I think, you know, it, it is true. It seems 
a little bit part of that managed care backlash from the 90s, but I, mean, I think there's that some perception that more tests are better tests and that the only reason that anyone would be denied a test is because you know, the insurance company is trying to save money and not that you perhaps wouldn't actually get a benefit from an additional test or treatment. Right. Great. Well, Ruth, thank you very much. Uh, uh, Rita, one question that I had, the um, when you look at the data that you generated, uh, if um, if those people who went straight to PCI uh, would have had a stress test first, uh, how many PCIs do you estimate would have been avoided? Is that a fair question? Well, I mean, that's a fair question. I mean, assuming that most people, I think, would not send somebody who had a negative stress test on right. for cardiac cath, you know, depending on the risk of the population, it, I would say a good number, may, you know, it'd be hard to estimate it. Really, it depends a little bit, and this is an older population, so we think we'd have more positive stress tests in an older population um, than a younger one, but right. certainly a, a good number we would have thought would have had a negative stress test, particularly, you know, we didn't get all the data, but it, there weren't that higher percentage of patients in this population that had recorded a diagnosis of chest pain, which usually would be the reason that one got referred on for um, coronary angiography and stenting. Right. So we then have a question about the difference between a dynamic test like a stress test, which looks at flow, and then and a uh, uh, and an anatomic test such as a uh, such as a cardiac cath, which those two things may may not be well correlated with each other. Right. Exactly. And and as far as we know, the best um, outcomes are in people that. Well, the most benefit is in people that have had ischemia, and that's as demonstrated by stress testing. We can't right. demonstrate ischemia by an anatomic test like an angiogram. Great. Uh, Pamela, next question. Absolutely, sir. And our next question comes from the organization Mission Hospitals. Again, please state your name before asking your question. This is Christina McQuiston, and the, the moderator just asked my question. I, I phrased it a little bit differently. I I asked if, if from the data that you have in those patients who who did get stress testing, what percentage of them went on to get PCIs and what percentage did not. And that would be kind of an indirect way of looking at how many you may have avoided by by taking this strategy. Right. So that, that would be a very interesting question to look at. Mm -hmm. We, you know, because we started with a population who got PCI, Right. We, we couldn't look at who got stress tests and did not go on to PCI, right. but that certainly would be a very interesting question. And then, of course, from an administrative da database, we didn't get results of the stress test, mm -hmm. but from a database such as um, the CAF PCI a database that the ACs, the American College of Cardiology, maintains where stress test results are now being answered in it, that would be a very interesting question to look at. Mm -hmm. I did have another another question, if that's okay. Yes, absolutely, please. Okay. Um, I know that there was a, another recent study that showed it, that in patients with chronic stable angina that there was no improvement in morbidity and mortality if those patients did go on to stenting. And I'm, I'm trying to synthesize all of that data into how how we as primary care physicians can, you know, can develop a strategy. Say, Say particularly in the older patient population. 
Right, that's a good question, and I think you're referring to the Courage study yes. that was published a year ago. And yes. as, as you said, that mm-hmm. study compared um, patients who got optimal medical therapy to patients who got optimal medical therapy plus a percutaneous coronary intervention and found that there was no difference in uh, preventing heart attack or how long they lived right. in those two groups. There was a um, short-term small difference in anginal symptoms that favored the PCI strategy that disappeared by the end of the follow-up right. for that study. And so I, I do think that can be incorporated into primary care physician practice by you know, having identified a patient um, with suspected coronary disease or with um, definite coronary disease to discuss the options for treatment and to, you know, the options being really medical therapy or revascularization. And then I think, you know, our guidelines certainly suggest that we should always start out with optimal medical therapy as the first-line treatment for anyone with stable coronary disease and that we should only be considering a revascularization strategy if um, their symptoms are not controlled right. on optimal medical therapy. I, I, unfortunately, I think that's not what happens a lot of the time, especially I'm in an area where we have very easy access to, um, you know, to, to, car, you know, to cardiology. And, and that particular, you know, that I, I suspect that people are being referred much earlier for, for cardiac catheterization with or without stress testing. I think you're right. That's certainly what we heard from internists and from cardiologists when we did the focus groups last year and asked you know, how, what made them refer to the cath lab. And I think what we didn't really appreciate after until after we finished those focus groups was that people don't realize how much a referral to the cath lab for what you might think is a diagnostic cath is really a referral for a cath and then likely PCI if there was any obstruction seen. Right. Hey, Christina, where – is that right, Christina? Yes, that's correct. Uh, where is Mission Hospital? It's in Asheville, North Carolina. You're in Asheville. Yes. Uh, and so if you look at this data, as a uh, you're a primary care provider? I'm, I'm actually a hospitalist, but I have worked in primary care in the uh, area. Right. And so what would your strategy be for uh, taking this data and trying to use it for – uh, for improvement, what would you do with well, it? Well, actually, I think that it really gives it gives me data for something that I have suspected is the case all along. As a you know, as a primary care physician, I think I've always tried to to um, to focus on medical management and and not referring people quickly to see you know quickly to see specialists. And that was largely determined by the fact that I was when I was in primary care practice, I was working in a very Rural uh, and relatively relatively poor, you know, um, rural pop- with with a relatively poor rural population whose resources were very limited, and so I I always had to think twice about whether I was going to be sending them to a specialist or not for economic reasons. And so I think that that having data that sort of backs up the strategy that I have been sort of employing all along is is very helpful. Right, and so would you use this to? Uh... How would you engage with your cardiologist around this, or do you feel like you can't do that? Oh no, I think that we can discuss it, and we do. And now, as I said, I'm I'm really in I'm working in a ho- in a hospital, and we have a large uh, we have a large cardiology group. But I think that the you know I think that the group are interested in doing are interested in doing the right thing. I think that most of the patients who come through the hospital emergency room in this area are getting stress tests first. In fact, we tend to divide the the pop you know the 
the patients coming in with chest pain and to those who are perceived unstable from the from the beginning who immediately go to cardiology and those who are not perceived as unstable or who have limited risk factors who come through the hospitalists and who are risk stratified before you know before going on for cardiac catheterization. Right. Uh, and um, Dr. Redberg, what have you uh, and your colleagues done in the Department of Cardiology? How do, how do you take uh, information like this? And presumably you're a bunch of like-minded cardiologists, but you may not be. It's probably a pretty good-sized division you have there. Uh, how have you used this data to uh, to drive guideline uh, adherence, I guess you might say, in uh, the UACSF system? Well, you know, I think mostly it stimulates a lot of discussion and awareness of what we're currently doing. And I would say certainly we have a wide variety of practice. And I think you mentioned Portland. Portland was at 41%, so just slightly below national average. And I think San Francisco was at 46%, which was really just about at the national average. But I think um, studies like this help us to become more aware because what we found in talking to people about this work is that um, they were surprised at kind of how quickly the train ends up speeding into the cath lab once somebody is suspected of having coronary disease and that we tended not to stop down and have a discussion about options for therapy or evaluations for ischemia um, routinely before uh, cardiac catheterization. I think also we'll see... Um, some reflection of this in the national guidelines because we use the American College of Cardiology um, and the American Heart Association national guidelines, but there are now going to be an appropriateness document, which is like a translation of the guidelines into what is appropriate um, patients for PCI in practice, and there'll be an appropriateness of PCI um, statement released by the American College of Cardiology early next year. So hopefully it will also reflect this work. Great. Very interesting. Uh, Christina, thank you for your comments. Thank you. Uh, Pamela? Yes, sir. And we do have another question, and it comes from the office of Thomas Guerra, MD. Please proceed with your question. Tom Guerra, San Antonio. And uh, I don't have your article in front of me. Did you state that doctors over 70 years of age were more adherent to the guidelines? They were more likely. That's right. They were the group that was most likely um, to have patients who underwent a stress test. Is that a usual finding for older doctors to be more adherent to guidelines? Well, that's a good question. I haven't seen other analyses that looked at it quite that way. So that's an interesting question, but I don't know. Dr. Kyle, do you have any? Uh... I don't know that. I don't know that there is data on that. It is a very interesting question, and one could postulate a lot of different potential reasons for that. They've known their patients for longer. They have a better relationship with their patients. They're used to practicing in a more sort of conservative medication-oriented as opposed to intervention-oriented uh, sort of environment. But it is a really interesting question. I don't, don't know the answer to it. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the I think probably uh, the uh, read is it true that the strongest uh, association was with the number of cardiologists that are in the area? Is that uh, remind me of that? In terms of um, the number of yeah, PCIs that are performed? The number, that's right. So that doctors who whose PCI volume was greater than 150 have the lowest rate of stress testing. 
their patients right. have the lowest rate of stress testing before PCI. Right, which is which is what Elliot and uh, Elliot Fisher and Jack Weinberg and others behind the Dartmouth Atlas uh, have called supply-driven demand, uh, and uh, that is the case such that the more of a particular type of specialist you have in an area, irrespective of quote-unquote need, you will have more of those tests and procedures. Uh, and while it's hard to uh, state an exact reason for that, presumably the reason behind that is people are trying to support their salaries. And I don't think that there's, I don't think there's explicit maliciousness. I think we are do a very good job of convincing ourselves we're doing the right thing for the patient. Right. Uh, and uh, and behind that is uh, uh, is something more insidious, which is something about supporting our salaries. And certainly, that's what we heard in the focus groups because it came. The same message came from people that were doing intervention and people that weren't doing intervention, and people that worked in pizza services, well, people that worked in capitated environments. They still told us that, despite the lack of evidence to support it, their feeling was that an open artery was better than um, medical therapy. Right, and and when we add up when we add up the number of excess uh, caps that may be done, and again, you don't have the data. This study didn't provide that data exactly. Christina asked about uh, sort of a similar set of data. We don't have that, but presumably it's a significant number. Um, uh, and uh, and the other associated consequences of those excess uh, PCIs, such as dye-related nephropathy and other things like that. Uh, and you layer on top of that, the current study uh, would suggest that, uh, I guess, uh, at its core, that medical man- that uh, intervention is, does not uh, perform much better than medical management. The the underlying, I think, message here is that we could be doing quite a bit of harm by practicing this way. Certainly, I would say that we we could be spending a lot of money on a procedure that hasn't been shown to be of benefit in the patients who are getting it. I mean, it's estimated that PCI has accounted for at least 10% of the increase in Medicare spending since the mid-1990s. So that's why we felt it was important that to document that patients who are receiving PCI are getting it for the appropriate indications. And are there are there studies, uh, follow-up studies that are connected with this that are looking at adverse consequences? Exactly. That's what we're um, planning to do for our next study. That's underway. The outcomes, yes. Great, great. All right, Pamela? Thank you, sir. I just wanted to remind everyone, uh, should you have a question, to please press star 1 now. And there appears to be no further questions, Dr. Kylo. Great. Thank you. So I do, I do think that we're really challenged to think about how we use compelling data like this, uh, with this being just, uh, again, a piece of it that is connected to uh, the Dartmouth Atlas and other uh, studies that look at appropriateness of utilization and really understand how to use it for improvement. Mm-hmm. As, as cost becomes an overall uh, driver for the need to fundamentally transform healthcare, I think we're all going to be challenged in that regard. Uh, and uh, and uh, Dr. Fisher and Dr. Wenberg have said on multiple occasions as an estimate that they believe 30% of the healthcare that's delivered in the country is, is unnecessary. Uh, and does not follow uh, an evidence base, this would be certainly a part of that. And you just mentioned some of the economic consequences, 10% of the increase in Medicare spending directly related to PCI uh, since uh, since the early 1990s. Um, as a cardiologist, uh, how do you work within the uh, American College of Cardiology and other venues 
uh, with your colleagues. We have we have the antithesis of this example where uh, readers, you and I talked about uh, in our preparation for this call. You've got cardiac uh, CT scanning, and a relatively small number of cardiologists uh, were successful at canvassing their uh, national congressional representatives to convince CMS to pay for a procedure which does not have a decent evidence base behind it. I would imagine that the tensions within the within the halls of cardiology are relatively great these days. What's what's going on there? <laughs> well, I think you know that's probably true for medicine all over, um, because of the pressures on our federal budget, pressures on our national budget, and you know, the growing problem of uninsured in this country, and the projections that um, Medicare will become insolvent and that healthcare costs are going to take over our GDP because they've been rising so much faster than our um, consumer price index. So, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure. I think, you know, the American College of Cardiology has been very proactive in addressing some of these issues through the appropriateness guidelines. The ACC also has a task force, um, a blue, blue ribbon panel on health system reform has, so has been a very active part you know, of the healthcare reform movement that is much talked about in Congress now. Um, there's also been a lot of talk about an Institute for Comparative Effectiveness and speculation that some of this kind of uh, data would be the thing that an Institute for Comparative Effectiveness would um, take on. I think certainly the appointment, um, or it seemed like it was definite, of Peter Orzag to the uh, who directs the White House Budget Office, and who as you know, has been the director of the Congressional Budget Office, and he's been talking a lot in the last few years about the role of health care costs in the federal budget deficit and the, you know, in the economy in general. So I expect we're going to see a lot of attention to health care costs um, it, with this current administration coming in in January. Um, so, I mean, all of those are things that will continue to look at and hear about, and certainly, you know, there was a suggestion in the editorial that went with our article that um, Medicare could consider an evidence-based reimbursement system and reimburse according for procedures according to the level of benefit expected, which is, you know, I think an interesting um, suggestion and perhaps one we'll see more discussion of as well in the next few years that somehow our guidelines would be incorporated into um, a reimbursement system, kind of the way pay-for-performance, which has mostly been a process-based uh, payment system, works now. Right. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, the uh, One of the things I think we are increasingly challenged by is the opportunity to even have conversation with each other across uh, specialties or across, not even across specialties, across practices. I think the hospitalist movement, one of the unfortunate downsides is that they, they've created an increasingly insular uh, clinical commu community uh, such that we don't run into each other as much in the hallways anymore. We all sort of practice in an increasing level of isolation. The cardiologists are doing their uh, procedures in their, uh, in their own uh, procedure suites, uh, certainly true of stress tests. Some build their own cardiac cath suites. And so the less we're in touch with each other, the less we even have an opportunity to talk to each other about this. Some communities I know are moving forward with uh, at least early conversations about a compact, uh, a physician compact, where you bring data like this to bear and you begin to agree on practice standards. 
Uh, and what that does is it uh, allows us not to practice in isolation, uh, because I think when we practice in isolation, it allows an unfortunate amount of pathology to enter into our, our practice if you think nobody's looking, unfortunately. And uh, I think we've seen a lot of that. And a question we might we might ask ourselves is how do we, in a local medical community, begin to come back together to collectively look at our practice and to collectively decide on those standards? Um, Reed, have you seen much of that occurring across the country? I know it's, to think that primary care is going to call its cardiology colleagues into a conference to talk about these things is hard to imagine given the state of primary care today. But it does happen uh, here and there. Have you have you witnessed much of that? Well, no, I, I, it's a great point, although I can't say I've witnessed much of it, and I think it is one of the unintended consequences, perhaps, of the hospitalist movement. And in general, though, I think there are so many pressures on primary care physicians now, and they're, you know, already I think we're suffering from not enough primary care physicians and increasing encroachment on their time in terms of the quality measures and performance measures and perhaps, you know, electronic medical records taking a little more time than people had hoped they would. So I think it would be great to have more conversations, but I'm not optimistic that it's going to happen unless we actually um, change our system to really make it happen or, or set up primary care or primary care systems to make that happen. Right. I would say, you know, when we did, again, those focus groups that what struck us at every one of them, because we were bringing together internists and cardiologists always from the local area, that what people said to us after the groups was that it, one of the things they really enjoyed was the opportunity to talk to their colleagues because they never get to talk to their colleagues anymore. So these were people that were all, you know, for example, working in the San Francisco area or in Chico or Los Angeles where we did the other groups. And they just really enjoyed, and you could hear from the level of um, – discussion in each room, we got into very intense and, you know, passionate discussions that people really miss that opportunity to talk to their colleagues about how to take care of patients. Sure. And I'm really curious about whether anybody on the call has got experience with this and whether they've done anything like this in their local medical community or even just uh, sort of one-on-one medical group to medical group, uh, primary care group to cardiology group. It would be great to hear that experience uh, from folks who are out there. Uh, and to see what that experience has been has been like, or across the country, these kinds of things are uh, have been called compacts, uh, C O M P A C T, a compact, as opposed to a contract or something like that. And the compact is a coming together and it's sort of an agreeing on what is my turf, what is your turf, how do we agree, what do we agree is the best practice, and how do we agree to work together uh, around specific clinical conditions. When is it appropriate to refer? Uh, for specific tests, uh, what kind of things ought to I, ought I have done before I do refer? When do I expect you to get the patient back to me so that the cardiologist is not managing the lipids or the hypertension or even the post-MI case for, uh, for longer than need be? It does seem to me we need to knit ourselves together, uh, around conversations like that, even in this, uh, uh, very autonomously driven private practice world that I live in. Uh, where I'm surrounded by other private practice, it seems like we're going to have to use mechanisms like that to come together uh, uh, to virtually integrate our care and to agree on such standards at the at the practice level. Uh, again, interested in any, if any of the callers have experience with something like that. Pamela, any comments or questions in the queue? Yes, sir. And our next question or comment comes from the organization 
Healthcare for the 21st Century. Please state your name before asking your question. Hi, my name is Norman Charney. And listening to this conversation, uh, I, I didn't detect the fact that the incentives that are out there are all leading to the outcomes. Uh, I was wondering whether any studies have been done on closed systems like uh, Kaiser, where all the physicians are on salary, there's no entrepreneurship, and all of the physicians get uh, um, uh, sort of monitored in the system by their colleagues and, and you know, sort of get report cards and, and get the bo bonus points for improving the health of their patients rather than how many procedures they did. Norman, great question. So we might look at both the VA and, uh, and Kaiser. Rita? Right. right. And I think that is a great question. Um, you know, it would be very interesting to look at. I would say, again, just from the focus groups that we did last year, we did have physicians from capitated um, plans where they didn't have any financial incentive and they um, to do procedures, but they it seemed to be still part of the medical culture that people felt if they saw an obstruction on a coronary angiogram, they were going to recommend or do a percutaneous coronary intervention. But I, I think it is certainly a very important point that our system is definitely structured towards doing procedures and doing interventions in that we get paid per procedure and per intervention, and we get paid fairly generously for procedures and interventions compared to kind of the intellectual or evaluation and management activities, and that we get paid just as much for an appropriate procedure as for an inappropriate procedure. And so, you know, there are, certainly there are a lot of system reasons that keep things um, the way they are now. And, and the, but it's the, uh, not the only reason. Pardon? Yeah, the, the uh, capitated system, uh, you have doctors that are capitated, but they're also taking care of private patients. And so they, they don't practice one type of medicine, so they do everything for both, both uh, practice modes except when their capitated program starts running out of money and they find out who's using too much and then maybe they take control over it. Right. But even when we did talk to people that practiced in closed systems, they uh -huh. still seem to believe that you know, intervention was the best treatment despite the lack of evidence to support that for stable coronary disease. I think I do think that it is, uh, Norman, it's a great, great issue to bring up. I do think that it's terribly interesting to look at uh, the Kaisers and the VA out there. I think we would all assume that they are more advanced around things like this than many times they are, unfortunately. And um, uh, I know that our, in, in Portland, uh, which is the uh, Center for Northwest Permanente, one of the Permanente, uh, one of the Kaiser regions around the country, and in other Permanente regions that I've had a chance to work with over the years, uh, that while I think they are ahead of us in having these conversations, they're at the same time not as far ahead of us as you would like for them to be or, or to assume that they would be. And I do think it is, it remains an issue, perhaps, Rita, of, you know, do they take the time to sit down with the evidence? and really de decide at an organizational level what is best care and then make sure that that is communicated to everybody, uh, that that is the practice pattern and that that is adhered to and, and that's monitored with data. Uh, and, again, it would be interesting to look at specific data from both the VA and from Kaiser, which is not really a part of this your, your study. I suspect maybe maybe some of the Medicare data was from Kaiser, but probably not much of it. 
No, because the um, the capitated data doesn't is right, separate that's right. from the sure. Medicare, so we didn't see that. Sure. I, yeah. I, sus- I suspect that the data will help, but incentives will help even more. Right. I, you know, certainly there are, right now our system is definitely all the incentives are to do more things. Yeah, you know, and our our um, our system has shown a phenomenal resiliency. It's thwarting up, uh, efforts to change that those incentives. So we will we will see what happens in the uh, in the years ahead, which promise to be very interesting. Thank you, Norman. Any other questions or comments? That, that's it right now. Great, Rita. Thanks. You know, I was while we were talking about the current study, I just. Um, wanted to say that, you know, all of our studies, Courage and all of the others that have compared medical therapy to medical therapy plus PCI have not been, you know, usually we do blinded studies or double-blind studies, and there has never been, you know, a blinded study for percutaneous coronary intervention. And so, well, I think it's interesting that the biggest difference in the two groups was that um, one-year difference in the angina score I think that to really know whether that difference was due to putting a stent in or just taking someone and doing an invasive procedure, we really need to have a sham control study where you do percutaneous coronary intervention sham in one group and the actual stent in the other group, and both groups get optimal medical therapy because, uh, unfortunately, none of our studies were blinded, and we know that just doing an invasive procedure may lead to a change in subjective symptoms, and none of the objective data was different in the COURAGE um, trial or in any of the previous trials. So when I um, have said that before, people say, well, it would be unethical to do a sham control, but I don't actually think it would be, and we do sham controls in surgical studies, and I think it's you know, unethical. It, it's important to have data of benefit of the procedure, and we really need a sham control for a procedure to know that the benefit's coming from the procedure and not from doing an invasive um, intervention. All right. You know, tied to uh, two of the last comments together about the age of the issue of the age of the physician and this last one about the financial incentives. Do you have data about who was doing this stress test? I mean, I would imagine that if the primary care practice itself uh, was doing this stress test, uh, that you would get more of the stress test and perhaps a more conservative uh, overall approach. Yeah, I mean, that's a good – we didn't look at that specifically. I mean, certainly previous studies have shown that, you know, people that own equipment are more likely to use that use that particular test in their practice and that um, people, interventional cardiologists, are more likely to recommend interventions than non-interventional cardiologists. But we didn't look at that in this study. Right, and that, that, that last question about the age of the physicians, it could be that the – those older physicians are still doing a lot more of their own stress tests, whether they're doing them in the hospitals, which many people do, or in their office, don't, don't know. But it's, it's another part of the postulate, postulate there, I guess. That would be uh, interesting. It would be. Pamela, anybody else in the queue? Yes, sir. Uh, we do have a follow-up question coming from the organization FINDM. Please Great. proceed with your question or comment. Hi, I was interested by your discussion in your discussion about getting different physician groups to have conversations. Um, and how people relish the opportunity to talk with one another. But um, an important piece that's missing even in those conversations is, is a careful examination of, of the evidence because what's missing from individual practice, of course, is that overview of um, real outcomes. And I think um, it's important to distinguish between um, outcomes versus 
um, endpoints that are easily measurable. And so I think rather than casting cardiologists as being um, evil people who are just trying to um, obtain salary support, um, their their vision of what's going on, you put a stent in, you see you see blood flow improve. Um, and so you, you can – that's a very impressive phenomena. Um, the downside is that that doesn't translate into a decreased chance of having a heart attack. Um, and so those disparate points need to – need to be um, brought into the conversation. Right. Absolutely. I think that's an excellent point that it certainly helps, you know, to have more data and, you know, I think the ACC cardiovascular registries help in that regard. Um, I was actually, Chuck, also thinking that, if you wanted to respond to that particular question, but I was thinking that CME conferences might be an opportunity to have to focus more on physician discussion about cases and practice patterns. I think that's right. And, you know, we've been uh, working with a couple of different organizations to try to take their CME and turn it into more sessions like this, not just a 55-minute presentation by a, a learned professor about their research and then, you know, a couple of minutes for questions and answers at the end of the session, but really more a 30-minute presentation or a 20-minute presentation about the data and then the rest of the time about, so what do we do with this? How do we change practice? And let's talk to each other about what the standards are uh, and how we how we monitor our performance against those standards. So I think that's really good. And, Ruth, your, I think your question is a good one, and I don't uh, don't think we're uh, – we it is our desire to be accusational at all. We do know that there are certainly financial pressures and financial incentives that drive people's behavior, and we know that the supply-driven demand – uh, issue is present, unfortunately, all over the all over the country. It is something that uh, is an unfortunate, perhaps an unfortunate aspect in some instances of of human behavior, uh, and it certainly is not uh, limited to uh, cardiology or physicians or uh, anything like that. But it is a phenomenon that we've seen, obviously, in uh, in spades as we look at it, as we look at healthcare. And we do we do come at this from very different uh, directions. I was having a conversation with a um, ophthalmologist who happens to be the chief medical officer of a uh, of a health system, a good sized health system, uh, last night. Uh, and we were talking about issues like this. And he said, if you needed to have a prostatectomy, would you rather have a, a robotic prostatectomy or an open prostatectomy? And I said, well, that's the wrong question. The the issue is, should somebody have a prostatectomy in the first place? And he didn't understand the nature of that of that question. Uh, and uh, he was not cognizant of the uh, U.S. Preventative Services Task Force uh, um, updated guideline for PSA screening, which came out about two months ago, which fundamentally questions whether collectively prostate cancer screening is actually doing more harm than it may be doing good, which is a really profound question to ask. And so his mindset, his assumption was that intervention is obviously necessary. The prostate cancer screening is worthwhile, and if you, for those who need a, a, a uh, an intervention, more technology must be better. And uh, without missing the bigger question, the question of the more fundamental issue about uh, the nature of the data to start off with, I think we are collectively challenged in that regard to get to some of that foundational data and get our practices back to incorporating it into our practice, and that I think that is the nature of this kind of study. Right, but even, even in the example of the robotic prostatectomy, patient satisfaction has actually been reported to be lower in those having the robotic procedure rather than the open prostatectomy. So there's, there's often um, 
thought experiments where you just assume something is better because it, it follows a pattern, but the evidence isn't there to support it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, and those, and those patient expectation studies are really challenging, aren't they? Because you don't know that. You wonder if satisfaction is tied to pre-existing expectation. And the higher you get pre-existing expectation, the changes their yardstick. And so they're measuring the outcome against a different yardstick, which is really an sure. interesting issue. Yeah, really great question. Well, we are out of time uh, at the end of the hour. Uh, this has really been, I think, a fantastic and engaging, critically important conversation for us to have together uh, at this point in the uh, the great history of American medicine. Uh really want to appreciate uh, or thank each of you for your comments and questions. In particular, thank Dr. Redberg for taking her time to be with us today. Rita, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock Eastern time. And once again, our conversation for next week or next month will be depression screening and out, uh, patient outcomes in cardiovascular care uh, by Drs. Brett Tomes and Roy Ziegelstein. And that was 